Good morning. Why don't you remain standing, if you would. If you need a Bible, slip up your hand, we'll get you a Bible. We're going to, we're in John chapter 17, and we are going to be, Lord willing, in verses 6 through 13. So let's read them this morning together. So again, if you need a Bible, slip up your hand, we'll get you a Bible. But we are in John 17, verses 13 through I'm sorry, 6 through 13. Verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have known all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name these whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Lord, help us to understand your word this morning. Not only understand it, Lord, but help us to apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to mine from this word, glean from it, Lord what it is that you would have for us this morning. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So we are studying in detail the prayer of Jesus. And in this prayer to the Father, we're looking for ways to overcome the world. Because the world, as we looked at last, last time we were together in John 17, keeps trying to drag us back in, to pull us back in. Now, we already looked at three tools in verses 1 through 5 that have given us help to overcome the world. Prayer was number one, right? Now, prayer doesn't change God's mind, but prayer gives him permission because we have what? A little thing called free will, which I wish sometimes we didn't have, but we do. We give him permission to do what he's always wanted to do in our lives, but can't because we have free will so in other words if you're praying to god lord please help me to be more patient please help me to be more understanding more merciful that may be something that god's been looking to do in your life for a long time so be careful what you pray for we looked at glorifying god by lifting him up in the way that we live our lives and then the third point was obedience to his word his word which leads and guides us and today we're going to look at four more lord willing manifesting The word, security, and joy will be our next four tools, if you will, on how to overcome this world. So first, let's look at manifesting and how that helps us overcome this world. In the first part of verse 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. So Jesus has manifested the name of God to his disciples. 
That word manifest means to make known or to reveal. And Jesus has shown them who God is. Now in the Old Testament, God revealed himself through his what? Through his name. God told Abraham, I am El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. He told Moses, I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. He told Jeremiah, I am Jehovah Tiskanu, our Lord of righteousness. He told Ezekiel that he is Jehovah Ra, the Lord is our righteousness. I'm sorry, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Ra is the Lord is my shepherd. And so there's many other Old Testament verses that reveal the name of God. And I wish I had time to go through all of them this morning, but it's a great study if you ever want to do it one one day that you have some time, is to study the Old Testament names for God. But how did Jesus reveal God to his disciples through his name? Well, you remember the seven I am statements of Jesus? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. So Jesus revealed the very nature of who God is to his disciples by showing them that he is God and that he is all that they need. When you saw Jesus, you saw God. When you heard Jesus speak, you heard the voice of God. Now you could tell that Jesus had come from the Father, that Jesus had been with God. When Moses went into the tent of meeting, when he came out, he had been in the presence of God and his face, what the Bible tells us? Shown, his face shown. The people could look at Moses and see that he had been with God. Now the way the disciples revealed God to the world was by revealing the nature of who Jesus was to those around him by the way that they conducted their lives. When people saw them, they saw Jesus in them. In the book of Acts, the Sanhedrin could see that Peter and John had been with Jesus. It says, now when they had saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 13. The Sanhedrin could tell that they had been with Jesus. What about us? Can others tell when we've been with Jesus? They can certainly tell when we haven't. So another way that we overcome this world is by allowing Jesus, not the world, to be manifested in us and through us. So when others see us, they can tell that we have been with God. And not only can they see Jesus in us, they can hear Jesus in us. They can even smell Jesus on us. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for we have... We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The world wants us, wants to pull us back in, wants us to look and act and speak the way the rest of the world does. But when we look like Jesus, when when we act like Jesus, when we smell like Jesus, the world gets to see Jesus through us and that helps us overcome the world. Another way we overcome the world is through the name of God, by revealing the very nature of who Jesus is through his name. Jesus is our nourishment. He's our bread of life. He's our protector, our guide, our shepherd. He's our way, our truth, and our life. He is the door. He is the gate through which we obtain freedom and assurance. 
He's our light. When darkness closes in, we don't have to walk in the darkness. We can walk in the light of Christ. Jesus is the answer to all of this, all this world can throw at us. Jesus is the answer to that. He is truly our all in all. In a world that hungers for desire and desires material things, that hungers and desires for all this world has to offer, Jesus is all that we need. So we don't need what the world has to offer. And that's another way we overcome this world, by not needing or desiring what it has to offer, because we have all that we need in Christ Jesus. Amen? The second half of verse 6 says, They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is really an amazing statement Jesus makes. We were God's, and God gave us to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you got a first-round draft pick for me and others to be named later, but it was nice that we were once gods and God, where we were gods and God gave us to Jesus. And I believe this speaks of predestination. Paul wrote, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Before the earth was formed, before God breathed breath into the, and gave man life, God looked across the centuries and saw all who would believe in his son. God, who is outside space and time, saw you and I before we were ever formed in our mother's womb. We, he saw us believing in his son. He knew who would be his. So God has given all those whom he knew would choose his son to his son. So let that think sink in for a moment. Even before we existed, before we were formed in our mother's womb, we belonged to God. God knew us. He knew our name. He knew every hair on our head. He knew everything about us before we were ever born. That is the depth of the relationship that we have with God. We're not strangers to God. He knows everything about us. He's not oblivious to what goes on in our lives. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And that means he knows what we struggle with. He knows what our weaknesses and our faults are. Isn't that all the more reason to take everything to him in prayer? And Jesus says something else interesting here. He said the disciples have kept the word of God. Now that doesn't mean that they've been obedient. Because we know from reading scriptures that there were times when they weren't. But that word has a military connotation to it. It means to guard, to watch, to keep an eye on. Now, they may not have always been obedient to the word of God, but they were always loyal to keep their eye on the word of God. Even when they doubted, even when they wavered, they always were loyal to the word of God. And here's the key. When we know the word of God, when we keep it tucked away in our hearts under guard, we may not always be obedient to follow it, but we know what the word says and because we've kept our eyes on the word and because we know what it says we will be convicted when we aren't obedient to it we will feel uncomfortable in our disobedience and that always brings us back to the word so let me just say this there's going to be times and seasons when you don't feel like reading the bible when you don't feel like praying but let me encourage you with this read anyway pray anyway Keep your eyes on the things of God, even in a season of doubt, because you'll weather that storm that you're in a whole lot easier. You'll get out of it a whole lot sooner 
if you stay loyal to the things of God, if you keep your eyes on his word. The second tool we're going to look at this morning is just that, the word of God. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come forth from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. So John tells us in the first chapter of the first letter that he wrote that they saw, they heard, they touched God. God manifested in the flesh. And all that they had seen and heard, they have revealed to us through the, through the word of God, through the Bible. So that we may also know. And then John writes the reason for that. So that our joy would be full. Just as their joy was full, walking with, seeing, touching, knowing, hearing, God manifested in the flesh. In the first chapter of this gospel, John writes that the word, Jesus, was God and was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and they witnessed the glory of God. Jesus is the very word of God being spoken to them in the flesh. All that God wanted them to know has been revealed to them and they in turn revealed it to us through these letters. We have the words of God, the very words of God spoken right here in written form. We have on our laps in whatever form you have it in, in a book, in a tablet, on your phone, as long as it's not Facebook you're looking at and it's, and it's God's word, you have God in quotes. The word Jesus uses here for word is rhema. And I love the definition of this word. It is that which has been spoken by the living voice. They, can you imagine? They heard the very voice of God speaking to them. It is a specific spoken word that he has spoken to the disciples. Now, a few verses down in verse 14, Jesus uses the word logos for word. And logos is a little bit different. It's the written word, the precepts, the doctrines, the commandments of God. So we have the written and spoken word of God right in our laps to help transform us and to conform us to Christ. And so we're daily being transformed, which means sanctified, being made new. And we are daily being conformed into the likeness of Christ so that we are not conformed or overcome by this world. So God's word keeps us from being more like the world around us. And hopefully the more we're in his word, the more we become like Christ. And that's the other key. So you had to know this was coming, right? In order for us to be transformed and conformed by his word, we have to be in his word. Jesus tells his disciples that they have received the words he has spoken to them. Now in the Greek, that word receive means to take with the hand, to lay a hold of any person or thing to use it, to take up a thing to be carried. When we apply that to the word of God, do we take God's word with us everywhere we go? Do we carry it with us everywhere we go? Do we carry it with us in our hearts? The psalmist wrote, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11 That word hidden in the Hebrew means to treasure. The word of God is kept as a treasure in the psalmist's heart. And, and the heart at that time was believed to be a place for both thinking and feeling. 
So he kept the word of God as a treasure in his heart where he could always think about it and meditate on it. He kept it in his heart where he could always love it and treasure it. Do we do the same? Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Listen, when God's word is the treasure of our heart, it is the word of God, the very word of God that springs forth from our hearts. You know, when, when I'm quoting scripture to someone, or I say, the Bible says this, I find it very hard impossible even to be angry I find it impossible to be proud or to act in some other sinful way because I've turned on the fountain of God's word and I've allowed that fountain that's deep down inside of me to overflow from me and then listen the same is true for you when you're bringing forth that fountain of God's word it's very difficult to bring forth anything else because when the word of God is flowing from us it drowns out any wickedness from this world Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Listen, if you ever struggle with whether or not you matter, this says it all right here. We belong to God. We are important enough that God claims us as his own. He's even placed his seal upon us. And because we belong to him, nothing can separate us from him. Now Jesus prays for his disciples, not for the world. And it isn't that Jesus doesn't have a heart for the loss of this world. He did, by the way, come to save the world, right? He came to save the world from eternal separation from God. He came to save the world from their sin. So it's not that he doesn't have a heart for the loss of this world. He's praying specifically for the world as a whole. He isn't rather praying specifically for the world as a whole. He's praying for those workers of the harvest who are going to go out into the world and deliver his message of hope and love. Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be as one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus says he's no longer in the world. And that's kind of an odd statement because he is yet to ascend into heaven. But in his heart, in his mind, he feels as if he's already left this world. His heart and his mind are already home in heaven. And that's a good perspective for all of us to have, to be heavenly minded. You know, there's an old saying that you can be so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. I don't agree with that. I don't agree we can ever be too heavenly minded. In fact, I think we swing in the other direction, that we're more earthly minded. Paul wrote, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Colossians 3.2. Jesus says in verse 16 of this chapter, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So to effectively overcome this world, we cannot be part of this world. Let me say that again. To effectively overcome this world, we cannot be a part of this world. Amen? So we should be living our lives as if we're already in heaven with our Lord. How different would we walk this walk if we walked it 
as if we were walking in heaven already. You think you're going to walk around heaven a little differently than we walk around here? Jesus used this word kept or keep three times here to describe our relationship. The word for keep is tereo, and the word for kept is philoso. And they both mean the same thing. They mean to watch or to guard. But the definition I love the most is this, to keep from being snatched away and to guard from being lost or perishing. Paul wrote this to the Romans, which, by the way, is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he went on to write, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that an amazing passage of scripture? These verses speak of security in Jesus. Please allow me to, to read the words of one commentator that I believe gives a vivid illustration of the security we have in Christ. I don't want to go. The boy convulsed with sobs, choking out his words. Don't make me leave. It was one of the saddest stories I've ever read. The biological mother of this four-year-old boy had won a bitter legal battle to reclaim her son from his adoptive family. Once she arrived with her lawyer to take him from the only home he had ever known, the terrified, confused little boy pleaded with those he knew as mommy and daddy not to give him up to this complete stranger. Don't make me go, he begged. Please, please don't send me away. With no understanding of courts, lawyers, legal codes, the boy was removed and left to wonder what he had done to be banished from those whom it always said they loved him. Some Christians live with the terrifying insecurity that in the shadows of God's mind lurks a willingness to send them away if they fail or disappoint him. Despite their love for God, they fear that God will withdraw his love from them and banish them from his heavenly home forever. In the Bible, however, God repeatedly assures his people that once he sets his love on them, they are secured in that love forever. So how? How do we know that we are secured in his love forever? Because even reading that, even being assured by the words of Paul, there's times we still doubt, aren't there? Well, first, it is Jesus who keeps us in the name of God. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae that everything was created through him, through Jesus, and for him, that he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Think about who it is that keeps us, that holds us, that keeps us from being snatched away or lost or perishing. It's the same one who holds all of creation together. The one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who said, who spoke the universe into existence, and the world was created. The one who holds this world together, a world that by its very makeup should really implode. Here's a quick science lesson. And believe me, I was never any good at science, so this is going to be quick. The universe is made up of atoms. Now inside every atom is a proton, which is positively charged and an electron which is negatively charged what happens when you put a positive and negative together they separate they are repulsed by one another they push one another away 
And scientists agree that there is a strong force that holds this nucleus together. They've yet to figure out what that strong force is. Maybe they should read Colossians 1.17. But Jesus, of course, is the force that holds the universe together. If he were to let go, if he were to simply stop thinking about us, even for a moment, this universe would implode. So he is the one that keeps everything moving. I think we're in pretty good hands, don't you? Second, he hasn't lost any of us except the son of perdition, which of course is Judas, and Judas was not a believer from the very beginning. So Jesus isn't going to abandon us, abandon us or walk away from us. On the contrary, what did Jesus say? I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus tells us that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the ones who come to me I will by no means cast out, John 6, 37. Once we are his, we are his. So how do we know we're his? Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day, 2 Timothy 1.12. So those who believe in him, who have called upon his name, and have received them in, his, in their hearts, are his. And we trust that he's able to keep us until the day when we see him face to face. Another way that we know that we're his is found in John chapter 15. Those who abide in him are his. Those who bear fruit, those who have love for one another. Jesus said, this is how the rest of the world will know that you are mine by your what? Your love for one another. Bear in mind that it is Jesus who keeps us. He watches over us. And if one of us, even one of us, wanders away, what does the Bible tell us? He leaves the 99 behind to find the one. Now that verse may not have any special meaning to you. Unless you're the one. If we belong to him, he's always looking for us. He's always keeping us held together. Now, if we walk away, which some of us have done, he may give us some time to come to the end of ourselves like he did in the story of the prodigal, but he will always come to us with open arms when we're ready to return to him. Now, we all know stories of those who claim to be believers who have just walked away from their faith John dealt with that very same thing in his letter when he wrote, They went out from us, but they were not of us. And that's the important part to remember here. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So like Judas, they were just able to walk away because they were never part of Jesus in the first place. Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition, and that word means destruction. Judas wasn't the son of life. He wasn't the son of light. He was the son of destruction. Satan, the Bible tells us, is the destroyer. He is the one who brings destruction. So Jesus, in effect, is saying that Judas is the son of Satan. And listen, I've said this many times before. There's only two choices in the Bible, right? There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. You either are with Jesus or you're with Satan. There is no other way. The decisions that Judas made, the decisions that he made identified him with the world, not with Jesus. The decision that he made not to follow Jesus was a decision, and he didn't make this consciously, but when we're not following Christ, who are we following? Satan. 
So he made a decision to follow Satan by not following Jesus. And that decision will lead him and anyone else who makes the same choice to destruction. And then thirdly, our security is in Christ Jesus. John would write in his first letter, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you that you believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So our eternal life, the way we know we're secure in Christ, is because Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and then ascended into heaven, securing our salvation for us. Jesus said, and I have given them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. Listen, we have eternal security. Nothing can separate us from him. It's eternal because it's based on the works of Jesus Christ. It isn't based upon anything that we did. It isn't based on anything that we have to do. It's based solely upon what Jesus did. So neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God and from our eternal security. Fourth, this is all from God's perspective. Paul also wrote in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know the answer to that question? Everyone and everything. People can hate us enough to bring false accusations against us and have us in prison. People can hate us enough to have us killed or harmed. But from God's perspective, there is no false accusation that brought against us that will ever stand in heaven. And no attack against our person will ever keep us from seeing the face of God when we leave this earth. You see, we, our physical bodies may not be spared in this life from any of the dangers that, that we face in this world. But our spiritual bodies will live for all eternity in heaven. So God can confidently say that all things work out for good for those who love him, for those who are called to his purpose. Because from his perspective, no matter what happens to us in this world, he sees us in heaven with him already. So how does being secure in Christ and knowing that our salvation has been secured in Christ help us overcome this world? Well, to know that we're his... And that we walk through this world with a confident assurance that no matter what, we have eternal life in Christ helps us overcome this world. We have a peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace, not as the world gives, which is fleeting and unstable, but a peace that's in Christ Jesus. The world tells us to seek peace within ourselves. The world tells us to find peace and security in a job, in a relationship, or in wealth. Jesus tells us that in him and only in him can we have peace. In him and only in him do we have eternal security. And that is our confident assurance that helps us walk through this world and place our trust not in this world or the things of this world, but in him. But now I come to you that these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We have the joy of Jesus. And that's the last point this morning. In closing... It's that word that you guys love so much. Joy is the last tool we'll look at this morning. 
we have the joy of Jesus. And like the peace of Jesus, that only comes from him, this joy is only from him. Joy in the midst of sorrow, joy in the midst of pain, the joy that comes from knowing we have eternal security. The author of Hebrews wrote, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2 Now before we can look at the joy that was set before Jesus, we have to look at this in context. The writer of Hebrews is writing to believers. Believers who were thinking of giving up because of the persecution they were facing. Believers who were being overcome by this world. So the author writes, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance this race that is set before us. So he's telling the readers, don't give up. This Christian race isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. And we're in this for the long haul. So imagine running a marathon. I can't personally imagine that, but maybe you can. Imagine running a marathon. Imagine running it through your seasons of life, through every season of life. There's going to be sunny days filled with warmth and light. Those are the comfortable times. There's going to be days when the rain is going to pour down upon you and the winds are going to blow and the, the sleet and the hail is going to pelt you in the face. Those are the storms of life. There's going to be days when the heat is almost unbearable. Those are the troubling times of life when the heat is turned up in our lives. And there's going to be times when there's ice and snow and you're going to be slipping and sliding. They're going to be discouraging times. Those are the discouraging times in our lives when, when we feel like we can't take another step, when we can't go any further. And the point is that through all the seasons of life, whether we're pelted by hail and sleet, drenched by rain or slipping and falling or suffering from heat exhaustion, whether we feel like giving up, there's a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of men and women who have run the same marathon that we're running under the very same conditions, and they're yelling out at us, we did it, you can do it. We endured this, you can endure this. So how did they do it? And the answer is found in Hebrews 12, verse 2. They looked to Jesus. All along the way, all through that marathon, they kept their eyes, their focus on Jesus. One commentator described why we look to Jesus to run this race this way. He said, you are going to look to Jesus as you run. And what you are going to focus on as you look to him is this. He ran too. His race was 33 years long, and it ended with a horrific gauntlet of opposition and suffering namely the unspeakable torture of the cross and the immeasurable shame of such a death. He ran it. He finished it. How? Mark the words in the middle of verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And surely you will agree that the marathon Jesus ran was a marathon of love. The last several hundred yards of the marathon with nails in his hands and his feet and a spear in his side and a crown of thorns on his head was the greatest act of love that has ever been performed in the history of the world because he was dying for our sins, not his own. So for the joy that was set before him, you know what that joy was? You and I. You and I were that joy. 
Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for others. He died for us. He found his joy in sacrificing for others. Jesus looked at us as he ran his race. And so we have to keep our focus on him as we run ours. It's when we focus on the things of this world and we count on the things of this world for our joy that we get disappointed. It's when we focus on the hard seasons in our lives that we get discouraged. So keep your eyes on Jesus and you can overcome anything this world has to throw at you. The disciples learned that lesson when they were dragged before the religious leaders for preaching the name of Jesus. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I love this. I love this. This makes me think that the disciples were all from Jersey. <laughs> they were persecuted for preaching the name of Jesus. They were beaten and warned never to speak his name again. And so they walked out of that temple with joy in their hearts and continued to preach the name of Jesus. Why? Because they knew that even though they were dishonored by men, they were honored by God. Even though they were rejected by men, they were, lift, they were accepted by God. And even though they were put down by man, they were lifted up by God. What they did manifested God to others. What others saw as they preached the name of Jesus was the joy of the Lord in them. And that joy can only come from the Lord. A joy that helps us overcome this world. The joy that helps us endure this race. The joy the apostles felt wasn't joy in being beaten up. Nobody enjoys getting beaten up in this life, do we? What they found joy in was reaching others with the gospel message. They found joy in seeing others come to Christ. And that was more important to them than anything else. The world, which for them represented the religious leaders of the day, tried to overcome them. They tried to put a stop to that message getting out. But it didn't work. Instead of them overcoming the disciples, the message of the gospel overcame them. The Jews in Thessalonica, after Paul and Silas had preached the gospel in the synagogue for three days, or three Sabbaths rather, and many having come to Christ were upset. So not being able to, get, to lay their hands on Paul and Silas, they dragged one of their companions, Jason, before the rulers of the city. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They were turning the world upside down by the gospel message. And the Lord is still looking for those who would turn the world upside down today. Believers who aren't afraid to turn the world upside down with the message of the gospel. Believers who rejoice over the privilege, privilege of suffering for Christ. Believers who love their enemies, who bless those who curse them and return good for evil. Believers who say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Believers who know that to be great, you must be a servant of all. Believers who don't give up but keep manifesting Jesus in the face of discouragement and even danger. Believers who know who they are in Christ 
and that they are secure in that knowledge. Believers who live by the word of God and are not living by the ways of the world. Believers, radical, out of step, upside down believers. We don't want to just overcome this world. We want to turn this world upside down. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We want to be those who turn this world upside down. We turn this world on their ears. Lord, our worlds have been turned upside down by you, and we couldn't be any more grateful, Lord. We are grateful for the fact that we will never be the same again. And I pray that we bring, that you would instill, reinstill that passion in us, Lord. That we would want to tell others about you. That we would live and breathe for that. That we would find our joy in that. So, Lord, go before us. Help us to use these tools that we're learning in this prayer to not only overcome this world, but to turn this world upside down. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.